Support for the Petri Dish comes from the SAVE Clinic and Dr. Lisa Ochoa, offering screening diagnostics of risk markers for heart attacks or strokes. Scheduling of early detection screening is available to the public this month at thesaveclinic.com. Parents across the country spent August pleading with their school boards to protect their children from risk. But the way each parent measured risk was strikingly different. And a fault line opened up between people who very much wanted the same things. Healthy children. I have two children in the NISD school district. One of my children is immune compromised with a heart condition and asthma. With that being said, we do not want a mask mandate on our children. And without a strong commitment to the science-based, data-driven safety measures proposed by the CDC, schools will likely become centers of disease transmission in the community. Children need to see face and mouth movements and not be subjugated to fear tactics. But the same people who observe school zone speed limits and buckle their kids in for the drive to school are somehow under the impression that wearing a piece of cloth is an infringement on their rights and not a safety measure. Children spoke at several meetings too, both for and against mask mandates. Students like this one. I haven't stepped foot on campus since third grade because of COVID. I have been very careful by wearing my mask, but several classmates have gotten sick. My great-grandma died because of this, and I have four other grandparents that I am worried for. I am not vaccinated, and they are forcing me to go to school. And no kids there are vaccinated because we are too young. I ask of you, please make mask mandatory, at least for us young, too young to be vaccinated. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Great Thank job. Thank you. Yeah. Good job. Good job. The newly exposed fault line created one earthquake after another at these meetings. Even though everyone who spoke and shouted and cried and raged, no doubt, loves children, their own and others. But the nation is not only in the grip of the Delta variant right now, it's in the grip of a pandemic of bad information. Because of this, we're in the midst of a COVID surge that didn't have to happen, which is further frustrating and dividing people. We have the tools to fight this virus now, yet we're approaching 700,000 Americans dead of this virus, and it, it's just, it's unfathomable. All this death, all this devastation, and we have vaccines. This shouldn't be happening. We should be protecting ourselves and each other by getting our vaccines. We should be doing everything we can to protect the 50 million American children under 12 who are not eligible to be vaccinated. Yet bad information is keeping too many of the adults around them from taking the steps necessary to protect them. What's going on? From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is a Petri Dish special. I'm Bonnie Petrie. In this episode, we're going to dive into Delta and disinformation. Good evening, my fellow Americans. I want to talk to you about where we are in the battle against COVID-19. September 9th, 2021, President Biden had a few things to say about the pandemic and how we as Americans were measuring up as opponents against it. He spoke directly to two groups the more than 175 million who were fully vaccinated, and the 80 million who hadn't yet taken a single shot. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and it's caused by the fact that despite America having unprecedented and successful vaccination program, despite the fact that for almost five months, free vaccines have been available in 80,000 different locations, we still have nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. There are all kinds of people in that 80 million, including those who want to wait and see how others do with the shot, and those who say they won't get it ever, no matter what. Is we have the tools to combat COVID-19, and a distinct minority of Americans, supported by a distinct minority of elected officials, are keeping us from turning the corner. The president there seems to be throwing some not-so-subtle shade at governors like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who have resisted statewide efforts to contain the virus. Governor Abbott has fought leaders who want to use their own judgment to protect their communities. He's fought mask mandates at schools and in businesses. He's fought vaccine mandates. And he and others frame this as a battle for freedom. The president 
took issue with that. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you, the people you work with, the people you care about, the people you love. Okay, so let's start there with Governor Abbott. Welcome to the great state of Texas. In Texas, we're at near record COVID numbers again after a brief lull with nearly 12,000 in the hospital at the time of this recording and more than 2,700 people on ventilators. And this surge has been going on for several weeks, but Abbott has been firm in his thoughts about containment efforts. Going forward in Texas, there will not be any government-imposed shutdowns or mass mandates. Everyone already knows what to do. Everyone can voluntarily implement the mandates that are safest for them, for their families, and for their businesses. That was Governor Abbott on August 4th. Less than two weeks later, a day after tweeting a video of himself shaking hands at a packed maskless event, which you're hearing here, the fully vaccinated governor tested positive for COVID-19 himself. But his stance on mitigation did not soften. TPR's Paul Flav has been covering many of the governor's battles in San Antonio and beyond, and he joins me now to talk about them. Paul, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Of course. So the last couple of months have been a doozy for the state as cases surge, and Governor Abbott has really gone to war with local government, school districts, and others over masks in schools. So what's the latest? That's right. The city of San Antonio and Bear County have sort of been stuck in a time loop the past three weeks since announcing they sued the governor over his executive order, taking away their emergency powers to mandate masks. They won a temporary restraining order right out of the gates against the state for enforcing penalties against them for passing mask mandates in schools. That that was then stayed by the Texas Supreme Court, nullifying it. They then won an injunction in a district court and an appeals court, but it was again nullified by the Supreme Court of Texas. And so my understanding is now that the, the county's still waiting for the courts to rule on the merits of their case, which is basically that the governor doesn't have the right to suspend health and human service codes, that only the legislature can do that, and that the governor's orders violate the Texas Constitution. San Antonio City Attorney Andy Segovia admitted the case law on the latter argument was at times, you know, pretty old. I think one of the reasons we haven't seen recent case law is that we have never seen a governor that, uh, again, is using emergency powers to say government cannot act. Usually uh, we see in in an emergency situation, we have the uh, state government uh, taking real action uh, taking real mitigation efforts, again, usually in coordination in conjunction with local entities so that there is coordination and we're not working at cross purposes. So we think it's a solid legal argument. Uh, unfortunately, it's one that's you know relatively novel, but again, it's novel because usually the governor's acting on an emergency, not saying government has no role. The governor is arguing that his authority under the Texas Disaster Act is clear that he can do this and school districts and local governments contradicting his orders compromise his ability to coordinate a disaster response. But as many local governments have pointed out, and as Andy Segovia just did, he's not responding with prevention. So what has he done? He announced Texas would bring in extra nurses and doctors from out of state to help hospitals cope. He authorized additional infusion centers for monoclonal antibody treatments. And then we found out that the state had requested mobile morgue trailers from federal emergency managers early in August. Here's uh, San Antonio Mayor Ron Nuremberg. The fact is the state is planning for more people to die of COVID, so much so that they anticipate that uh, local hospitals across the state are not going to be able to handle the amount of death that they're going to see. At the time they arrived in San Antonio for staging, Texas hospitals had yet to request them, but that quickly changed. And within days of them arriving, hospitals in Bell, McLennan, Gregg, Galveston, Brooks, and Nueces counties all ran out of morgue space and asked them for help. According to the Department of State Health Services, eight trailers have been deployed from FEMA and uh, groups like the Texas Funeral Directors Associations. I thought it was interesting that Texas was not included in the recent announcement from the Justice Department that it launched civil rights investigations into five states over anti-mask mandate laws. So why not? 
The DOJ says it didn't include Texas or Florida, which are the two biggest battlegrounds for these issues because there were already legal actions going on in the states. So if San Antonio or Dallas or Harris County lose in their efforts, there's a possibility they could be added to that DOJ investigation. So while the state is battling mask mandates in schools across the state, it's seeing, you know, near record hospitalizations. So if you're the guy that's tasked with leading the state and protecting people, why do you spend your time fighting prevention measures? Yeah, um... Based on Abbott's continued statements, for him, this isn't about preventing the spread of disease as much as it is about personal liberty. He's continued to frame this debate incorrectly, as many would argue, as uh, a choice. A choice around masks and a choice around vaccines. Abbott himself was very public about his vaccination, doing it on TV. He was very public about getting COVID, too, and getting treated quickly for it. So he hasn't shied away from that. Here he is back in April talking about banning vaccine passports or the ability of businesses to ask to see proof of vaccinations. We will continue to vaccinate more Texans and protect public health. And we will do so without treading on Texans' personal freedoms. And that's an executive order he reissued last week. So Abbott's taking a very rightward interpretation to the limits of personal freedom and applying them to this pandemic. <laughs> okay, so... As I watch all of this unfold and I see the governor who's supposed to be protecting the health and safety of Texans not only stop well short of doing everything within his power to do that, but also stand in the way of anything local governments and schools try to do to control and even end this pandemic, it seems counterintuitive to what you'd expect to see from a guy who bills himself as a small government conservative, right? I mean, I, I, I'm a medical reporter and not a political analyst, but, but I don't think you have to be a political analyst to see that he's making it exceedingly difficult for local governments to make their own choices. And with the Delta variant surging through the population, causing case numbers and hospitalizations to spike, I mean... Even if it's just posturing now, it's arguably making him look not great to a growing portion of the population. Why do you think he's being so unyielding? Well, not to make this all about politics, but he is facing two very far-right challengers in his primary early next year. And if you'll recall, Abbott took aggressive action early in the pandemic, closing businesses and allowing mask mandates. SMU politics professor Cal Gilson says he paid a political cost. He took a lot of pushback, not only from conservative Republicans, but even from business owners. There was famously a, a hairdresser from Dallas that defied his mandate. Uh, and before long, he removed that mandate. Uh, and, uh, and he has been loath to, to, uh, to go with mandates again, preferring to be in line with his conservative base uh, voters and, uh, and elected uh, officials. Back when there were business closures, there was a lot of talk from far-right Republicans about reigning in his powers when the legislative session came up. And so he went the other direction. He banned mandates. And, and then those threats to limit his power evaporated. And we didn't see any of that occur this uh, legislative session. But now, at the heights of another surge, the math changes, and a lot of people in Texas are moderate Republicans who didn't vote for Donald Trump last year. Jilson says Abbott is in a real balancing act politically. Yes, thank you, Paul. So whatever calculus the governor may be doing, his attorney general, Ken Paxton, has sued more than a dozen school districts that have imposed mask mandates, and at least one that doesn't have a mandate uh, but a directive, which is you know, more like a suggestion. Um, so let's dive into the math of masks in schools a bit. Dr. Juan Gutierrez is the chair of the math department at UT San Antonio, UTSA. He's been modeling the progress of this disease through the population since the beginning of the pandemic. But he's no longer willing to project where the Delta surge might be headed. When you take into consideration the fact that we have a an increase mixing the populations between vaccinated, unvaccinated, anti-maskers, pro-maskers, 
with different levels of protection conferred by different vaccines, there is not enough data to make a, an accurate estimation. Our confidence intervals are now too broad, uh, probably too broad to be useful. The last model Gutierrez ran for San Antonio, Texas in August projected there would be between 50,000 and 200,000 new cases before the end of the year. Now, that is a pretty wide margin for the reasons he outlined. Since then, the city has surpassed the low estimate, but Gutierrez says the healthcare system in San Antonio, while stressed, is still functioning, and Texas's case numbers, while high, haven't exploded. And he says there's one reason for that. This is only due to the fact that the largest school districts in the most populous counties imposed a mask mandate or a very strong recommendation for masks. Had they not done that, we would have depleted by now the hospital beds in the state. Gutierrez calls the mask mandates in the state's largest school districts, including Houston, Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio, civil disobedience. And he says that's what's kept the healthcare system from collapse. It's because only and exclusively there is civil disobedience and the governor's orders are not being followed. That is, we're encouraging uh, parents and kids to use those face masks. It is a proven measure to stop this disease. And Gutierrez says from a mathematician's point of view, it's essential. Those districts don't back down in the face of the attorney general's lawsuits. As long as our school districts keep strongly encouraging and our communities keep using those face masks in the school districts, we will be okay. The cases will not explode. They will keep growing gently and maybe we will hit the plateau. If the level of mask use decreases in our schools, we could see a very large surge in the same places where we have concentration of people. Now, to be clear, Governor Abbott has not said masks are bad, right? He hasn't said they don't work, and he hasn't said they make kids sick. But his position on mandates in schools and government offices gives comfort to those who spread that bad information, whether because they honestly believe it or because they're people who have something to gain by fomenting distrust and anger. And it's playing out at school board meetings everywhere. Like this one. The masks, they don't work. We know that. We know that masks are harmful to children as well. So you put a mask mandate on, not only are you not really helping them, you're harming them. We know that. After the break, we'll take a deeper look at some of that bad information that's made its way to parents, influencing personal choices and political policy as Delta spreads in schools. You're listening to a special Petri dish from Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom. It's hard to believe that in a place as big and diverse as Texas, a lot of old stereotypes persist. From politics to environmental policy to the people, we're covering stories that don't usually get a whole lot of airtime. And we're offering new spins on a lot of those that do. I'm David Brown, inviting you to join us for the next Texas Standard. Welcome back to Petri Dish. All right, boys and girls, when the teacher's talking, what are you doing? You are listening. Schools are back in session, in person, across the country. we are wrapping up our ABC review. This class at Boone's Elementary School in San Antonio is masked, but mask mandates in schools are hit or miss, a political football that has exposed deep divisions in communities. Outbreaks are being reported all over the place, with school districts like the one in Ira Ann, Texas, having to shut down after being open only a week. The superintendent of that small rural school district said at the time of the shutdown, 23% of the district staff was out because they had either tested positive for COVID or had been exposed to it, along with 17% of the students. 
the American Academy of Pediatrics has reported that between August 26th and September 9th, a half million children were reported as new COVID cases. And for the week ending September 9th, kids made up nearly 30% of all COVID cases. 30% when they're only 22% of the population and made up just over 15% of COVID cases up till the Delta surge. The AAP and the CDC have recommended that schools require masks. But as you heard at the beginning of the show, not all parents are on board. TPR education reporter Camille Phillips covered several school board meetings dedicated to the topic in the San Antonio area this summer, and so I thought I'd bring her on to share her insight into the issue. So, Camille, tell me about these meetings. Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, it it just... They were all very long. Um, people are passionate about this. You know, parents, when you get them talking about their kids, when they're fighting for their kids' well-being, that's something that they're always going to be really passionate about. So there were 19 hours of covering board meetings combined. So there was one urban school district, um, San Antonio ISD, and they basically just announced the vaccine mandate for their staff and a mask mandate and then moved on to the next topic. The only public comments there were really parents asking for virtual learning. Uh, so basically, the, the the takeaway I took from that here, at least locally in San Antonio, our local districts that are more urban, high poverty, mostly students of color, their parents want masks. Um, San Antonio ISD asked parents to opt out of masks. That's how they handled the whole issue before um, the court battle started allowing masks in some places. And only 1% of parents actually opted out. They wanted masks. Um, So it seems to be more of a controversy in more affluent areas, perhaps more politically purple areas, if you will. So it's the more suburban areas that had parents at loggerheads, right? I mean, in my daughter's district, Northside ISD, right here on the north side of San Antonio, a woman was carried out for refusing to wear a mask at the meetings, and and she was shouting tyranny to the assembled people as she was sort of hauled out of the room. So what did other parents who were opposed to masks have to say? Yeah, um, a lot of people against mask mandates spoke about freedom and parent choice. There's a lot of parallels being drawn to it being a freedom issue. There's also a lot of misinformation being shared during the meetings. A lot of people citing some sort of like research paper that they've found. They said they have lots of research that showed that masks don't work. Even though, you know, the scientific consensus is that masks do work for respiratory viruses like COVID. Right. That is the scientific consensus. And that, I think, brings us back to the topic at hand, which is bad information misinformation, which is inaccurate information that people share, like the parents at the board meetings, and they honestly believe it's true, right? But it is demonstrably false. And then there's disinformation, which is false information, which someone shares knowing it's not true. So they intend to mislead. Now, it sounds like some of these parents have become unwitting amplifiers of disinformation. And now people who used to happily coordinate who's bringing the orange slices to soccer practice are at each other's throats. So Camille, do you get a sense among the parents and board members and district officials you talked with how or why this is happening? I think, you know, misinformation gets spread around on, you know, social media or from person to person that you trust. You know, you're sister or your friend says it and so you believe it um and i do think that it's confusing right at the beginning of the pandemic you know we kept on talking about how children are you know not nearly as at risk that it's mostly the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions that are at risk um but not as at risk doesn't mean there's zero risk right and i think we get confused um between those things it's, it's really easy if we're not an expert to to get confused and yet I think that there's just part of this whole like distrust in, in institutions that's developed in the last few years because that's the thing you know here's people in a board meeting hearing from 
you know, scientists, hearing from doctors on the front lines, hearing and, and repeating the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention saying that universal masking is, the, is needed right now in schools. And, and yet they don't trust that recommendation. They don't trust what the scientific community is saying. I don't know, I think it's just part of this whole like breakdown of trust and in who you listen to that's going on these days. Right, and this breakdown of trust seems to have exploded into this sort of, I don't know, take no prisoners culture war that it really feels like it's consuming everything. Yeah, but I think just the same even when in these like very volatile board meetings that lasted six, seven hours, we do have to remember also that these are the parents that are most passionate about this, right? You know, Northside has 100,000 kids. So even if you have, you know, 100 people speak, they're not necessarily representative of the district as a whole. Thank you, Camille. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so let's turn to an expert on this virus, infectious diseases more generally, and a parent of two children who go to San Antonio schools, UT Health San Antonio's Dr. Barbara Taylor. Dr. Taylor, first, as a parent, I think you'll agree, this stuff is hard. Yeah, it is hard because there is so much information out there. Some of it is good. uh, Some of it is not so good. And some of it is really meant to either confuse people or mislead people purposefully. And so I definitely understand why people are confused about masking and the utility of masking, because I, I myself have had several conversations over the last month about masking. And the data, if you are not an infectious disease doctor trying to parse the data with epidemiologic and biostatistical training, it really is, is messy. So give us the straight facts on kids and masks. So here are the things that we do know. From a science perspective, we know that three-layer cloth masks do prevent droplet and aerosol spread to some degree. They don't prevent all of it. No one is saying that. But what we're talking about is risk mitigation, what lowers the risk. So they prevent both spread, transmission from someone, but also inhalation of both droplets and aerosols. Not perfectly and not completely. These are not N95 masks. They're not the the Pappers, the sort of space suits that we wear in the VA, but they do mitigate risk. So there are those data. And the other data that we have are from schools. We have lots of studies, including a very well done in Massachusetts, well done study in Massachusetts. We have data from Duke University. We have data from our last year and a half of experience with COVID that shows us that schools where students are masked and some level of distancing is happening, even three feet, have very low rates of transmission within the schools. Some people say, oh, well, you know, Delta changes all that. It certainly does, but the same principles apply, and I think apply even more so and make masking more important with this more transmissible variant. One bit of misinformation, several parents at meetings that Camille covered claimed COVID is less deadly than the flu and therefore risk mitigation is not necessary. Before I ask you to respond to that, Dr. Taylor, I would like to say that we do try to reduce the risk faced by kids from the flu by getting them vaccinated starting when they're six months old. Okay, COVID versus the flu, Dr. Taylor. COVID is different from the flu in that even in children, COVID is more deadly and Delta is more transmissible than the flu. So we're dealing in this circumstance with a Delta strain with a virus that is hard to compare to flu because it's both more deadly and more transmissible, even for children. So while it is true that risk for death for children is much lower than it is for adults, and we are all incredibly grateful for that, it is not true that that risk for death is zero, and it is also not true that that risk for death is comparable to the risk for death from influenza. Dr. Taylor says reducing risk related to COVID is really no different from other things we try to do to keep our kids safe while also, you know, trying to let them live their lives. My daughter, who's 16 and uh, just started driving, her 
risk in driving is high. And yet that is uh, something that we accept uh, for her every day. However, she is in a car with seatbelts and airbags and not using her phone and no distraction. So I would actually compare masks to those seatbelts and airbags. I mean, back in the day, uh, which both you and I remember, where one didn't always have to wear a seatbelt, sure, it felt better to be in your car without, the, without feeling strapped down, but it was very risky. And I would say masks are a perfect parallel. Okay, so if you're on the internet, you know, at all, you may have seen over the last week or so that singer Nicki Minaj has been a hot topic because she was open and honest about her vaccine hesitancy. But she also shared a story about the COVID vaccine and her cousin and her cousin's friend who I guess claimed that he had some pretty nasty problems that she seemed, or the cousin seemed, or the friend seemed, to be blaming on the vaccine. Now, on my social media, I've seen a lot of people say that there is evidence that the vaccine has sickened thousands of people and it's being covered up. Then there are the people who know someone or know someone who knows someone who they say died not long after getting the shot. This type of anecdotal evidence, and I use the word evidence loosely in this context, Sometimes correlation doesn't equal causation. That is, I think, a clear misinterpretation of the data, because that's like saying how many people die after breakfast. And so therefore, breakfast is the cause of death. The question is, are those deaths after COVID vaccination related to the COVID vaccine? Or are they deaths from something else like all the unfortunate myriad of other things that people die from that don't have anything to do with the vaccination they just received. So I think you have to be very cautious about just pulling numbers and spouting numbers without context. And then some people are making judgments and decisions based on information that is embedded in fact, but it's incomplete, right? So for example, It's a fact that kids get COVID less often than adults, and they tend to get less severe cases, though both numbers have been growing with the Delta variant. But you can't make good policy by only looking at those two variables. Just go back to the fact that a lot of these data that are being cited are focused on death, but there is a lot more to COVID than death. Death is the ultimate and most horrific consequence of COVID infection, but the numbers for COVID pneumonia in children are not small. The numbers of children who develop long COVID is also not zero. And there are many things that we don't understand. You know, we've seen more, for example, heart inflammation among older teens and athletes than we see among any other age group with COVID. And so I think there are also consequences of COVID infection for children that we should not ignore that are short of death. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. After the break, we'll explore the ethical conflicts faced by healthcare workers as the result of this disinformation-driven Delta surge. It's so understandable why doctors don't want to treat these patients. I mean, they're They have empathy fatigue, they're frustrated. And we'll talk to a doctor of disinformation about how it spreads and what can be done about it when Petri Dish continues. Support for the Petri Dish comes from the SAVE Clinic and Dr. Lisa Ochoa, offering screening diagnostics of risk markers for heart attacks or strokes. Scheduling of early detection screening is available to the public this month at thesaveclinic.com. Hi, I'm Chris Boyd, host of Think. Think is a show for curious minds. Whether we're discussing history, science, politics, or the arts, my hope is that every conversation inspires curiosity and complexity, and that every listener walks away with their own questions, inspiration, and a thirst for more knowledge. Tune in and join me as we learn something new and take a moment to think. Welcome back to Petri Dish. How much did the CCCP pay you? 
You're a communist. You're a traitor against Americans. This is a free nation. In Texas, the top elected official in a county is called the county judge. It's like the county executive or the county mayor in other places. Now, in Bear County, where San Antonio is located, the county judge is named Nelson Wolf. Yeah, you. You won't be able to walk in the streets for long. I'm talking. None of y'all know Nelson Wolf's a traitor. He's a communist. You're hearing Judge Wolf being accosted while leaving the grocery store and being followed through the parking lot by this woman who insisted Wolf was a traitor in the service of the Chinese government for, she said, masking children and supporting fake news. You know, that, you know that the vaccine's a bioweapon? You know that the, the coronavirus is a bioweapon. Yep. This is disinformation gone mad. What is happening here? My name is Joan Donovan, and I'm the research director at Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And my role there is to research media manipulation, disinformation campaigns, as well as to look at the ways in which technology impacts society. I thought I'd ask an expert. Well, the pandemic, there was always going to be uh, some measure of people speculating about where COVID came from, what cures are available, and the efficacy of vaccines, the safety of vaccines. There is normal uh, resistance to certain ideas. Um, and of course, there's no communication without misinformation. Uh, we don't always have perfect knowledge of a situation. But when we talk about misinformation or medical misinformation in relationship to the pandemic, what we're trying to assess isn't, oh, someone is wrong online. You know, somebody's uncle is popping off again. What we're really trying to assess is the degree to which a massive amount of people have been exposed to the same lie. And massive amounts of people have been exposed to a lot of the same lies over the course of the pandemic. Donovan says people or groups or even governments promote a lie because there is some kind of intrinsic incentive, whether it's financial or political for political gain or to gain some other kind of influence. Take, for example, the recent culture war over ivermectin, a medicine used to treat parasitic infections like roundworm in humans and animals. So it's known as a, you know, as a horse dewormer. It's also used to treat head lice and rosacea in humans. Now, this medicine has been pushed hard by some people on the internet as an effective preventative or cure for COVID-19, even a miracle cure though there is, at best, very weak evidence that it's useful for those purposes. But when you look online and you look at what kinds of people are pushing ivermectin, there tends to be a very heavily heavy influence on um, people who are pundits, people who are YouTubers or podcasters, who are basically trafficking illicit information in order to gain followers and audience. They don't actually make money from the sale of ivermectin, but this is information that they say you can't get anywhere else. And so as a result, people are drawn to information that they feel is being hidden from view. When people feel like there's information being hidden from them, people feel like they're being lied to, well, some of them yeah, get angry. You're gonna go to jail, they're gonna hang you. Treason, crimes against humanity, Nuremberg trial. You're going down. You better enjoy your freedom while it lasts, buddy. Dr. Donovan says social media are particularly dangerous places for some of these people who can very quickly go down the rabbit hole. And so when I talk about the rabbit hole, I'm talking about four key features of the web and social media. One of them is repetition. They start to see the same thing over and over, and it starts to feel like it's true. The second feature is redundancy. That is, they're not just seeing the same thing from the same Facebook group, but they're seeing the same thing when they sign into YouTube or when they listen to their, their favorite podcast. And so they're part of a media ecosystem in which redundant misinformation is, is circulating. Redundant misinformation circulates to the exclusion of accurate information. If you just want to know more about something you heard, so if you search 
is the COVID vaccine a Chinese bioweapon? The algorithms of the internet take over from there. Donovan says that is a big problem for truth. That is to say the algorithms don't know what is true or false. They'll never know what is true or false. So that's a hard bar even for humans. But the algorithms will see that you've searched for a really unique keyword and you watch some videos on it or you interacted with some posts on it and they'll say, maybe you want some more of that. And so it'll serve you more and more and more uh, through reinforcement. And even if you start searching for other things like cats eating pizza, it'll, in the recommendations, show you a little bit of stuff that you had recently been interested in just to try to um, keep your attention on that platform. And so repetition, redundancy, responsiveness, and reinforcement are reasons why people end up starting to believe these things, even if they are not true. And then we take it from there, fighting on Facebook and insulting and blocking people we care about. With regard to ivermectin, even the FDA got the action when urging people not to take it, tweeting, you're not a horse. You're not a cow. So if, say, you're ivermectin curious, I doubt you're going to respond all that well when you ask about how much horse dewormer that uh, comes in a paste form to buy at the feed store to being made fun of by that stuck-up niece you haven't seen in a decade. But Donovan does understand the impulse to do that. You know, on the one hand, like, horse paste is pretty funny. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, like, that's weird. Right. That's like what is going on here. And so you do see people making memes about it because they're like, this just seems outrageous. But for me, as a researcher, I feel a deep sadness for people who are so afraid of COVID and they're so afraid of the vaccines and they don't know which way to turn and they don't have good uh, medical advice. And so they're turning to online communities asking about, well, how much should I take and, and what's going to happen to me? Um, because they're acting not out of bravado, they're acting out of fear. And it's that fear that is what some of these online influencers are monetizing. The influencers are the bad guys, not your scared aunt. People who are in positions of power, those are people we need to hold accountable. People who are making money off of dangerous speculation and off of pushing false cures, those are the things that I, I think we need to focus on if we are going to get at this problem of misinformation at scale and reduce the vectors by which misinformation travels and reaches the masses. Because that misinformation is killing people. People are not getting vaccinated during a deadly pandemic because of that misinformation. They would rather risk getting sick from taking a paste that is a horse dewormer than risk getting an FDA-approved vaccine because of misinformation. And the Delta variant is taking advantage of that. An analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation says a surge in COVID-19 hospitalizations among people who have not been vaccinated in August has added $3.7 billion in preventable costs to the nation's healthcare system, almost twice the estimates for June and July combined. KFF found the total preventable costs for those three months is now an estimated $5.7 billion. Nearly $6 billion in healthcare costs that were preventable if people had just gotten the vaccine. And that doesn't even begin to touch the human cost. On September 10th, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said over the previous two months of the Delta surge, those who were unvaccinated were about four and a half times more likely to get COVID-19, more than 10 times more likely to be hospitalized, and 11 times more likely to die from the disease. And then there's the human cost being paid by healthcare workers, some of whom, after a year and a half of being caught in the ringer of this relentless virus, don't really feel like treating the unvaccinated. It's so understandable why doctors don't want to treat these patients. I mean, they're, 
they have empathy fatigue, they're frustrated, they're angry at these patients, uh, these unvaccinated patients, because the science is really good. Uh, you know, the safety profile of these vaccines are really good. And yet, for various reasons, maybe because of tribalism or politics, these people are not getting vaccinated. They're kind of hurting themselves. Dr. Matt Liao is a professor of bioethics at New York University. So I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pass any judgments on the people who are unvaxxed. I'm passing judgments on them. I think they're, you know, like, I think it's really silly of them to believe all this misinformation. Um, Liao says healthcare workers should try to keep in mind that many unvaccinated patients are not just victims of the disease. They are victims of these misinformation and disinformation campaigns online. You know, here, these patients, they don't trust the doctors, they don't trust the science, um, but they come to the emergency room. So a lot of these people, they, they've come to regret their decisions uh, about vaccination once they've gotten it. You know, again, the hospital system, I think, shouldn't be a punitive system. For example, Liao says, doctors and nurses, healthcare workers treat enemy combatants in war. Even though they hate us, they want to shoot us, right? They want to kill us. But sort of when they are injured, we still have an ethical obligation to treat them. And that's a good thing. We think that's a really good thing. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like that uh, with prisoners as well, right? You know, uh, prisoners, some of them have done very horrific things, right? But if they get sick in prison, we have an obli like ethical obligation to also help them. We can't say, oh, you know, you are a really bad person, so we're not going to treat you, right? We, we still do our best to treat them. And again, I think that's a good thing uh, with respect to the hospital systems where doctors don't, at least they're not required uh, to pass that kind of value judgments on their patients. And though it's sometimes really, really difficult, Harvard's disinformation expert Joan Donovan says we should all try really hard to withhold the value judgments. As my colleague Brian Friedberg often says, nobody wins a meme war. It's sad, but making fun of people and poking fun at the bad decisions, that's damaging. And what we want to do here is end the pandemic, right? We want our relatives, friends, and neighbors to get vaccinated or let their kids wear masks at schools. We want them to listen to the scientists and the doctors with the good information and not get locked up in social media disinformation echo chambers, right? So maybe resisting that urge to post that hilarious, biting, maybe even mean meme is worth it in the end. No one wins a meme war. When I hear about the fury of the people who have done all that has been asked of them for a year and a half, going on two years to protect themselves and others during this pandemic, I get it. Economist and New York Times opinion writer Paul Krugman calls it the quiet rage of the responsible. And I feel it too. When I hear about all the people dying now who don't have to, not just COVID patients, but people with all kinds of treatable conditions, like a man here in Texas who had gallbladder-related pancreatitis, which I've had and survived, and he should have too. It's infuriating. Sometimes I am breathtakingly furious. We have the vaccines. I got mine for you. My daughter got hers for your child. Yes, we got them to protect ourselves too. But my goodness, people, this is a pandemic. And if we can't pull together now against this common enemy, then what are we even doing here? I wear my mask for you. Why won't you wear your mask for me? But see, this is the problem. When I let myself feel the quiet rage of the responsible, I find myself resenting those who won't take steps to protect me and my daughter. It feels, it feels personal, like they don't care if we get sick and die. And that makes me mad. And I bet when they hear me say that I think everyone should be wearing masks and getting a vaccine, they resent me too. 
they think I don't care if their kids get sick from wearing masks or if they die from getting the shot, which is a bioweapon, and I would understand if I just do my research. And everyone digs in. My social media feed is polluted with attacks on people's intelligence and screeds on freedom, and it seems like everyone hates everyone else, and this has to stop. It has to stop. People are dying. We're fighting a common enemy here. So, I'm going to ask you something. Something I think is probably difficult. It's difficult for me. Instead of insulting the next person who posts something about COVID that you know is incorrect, ask them about it. Ask where they got that information. Don't be condescending, okay? Be kind. Compare sources. Open a dialogue. Talk it through. Like people. Now, Dr. Donovan says many people who fall down these rabbit holes are scared. Think about that. You know what it feels like to be scared. Please try to approach conversations about COVID on social media and in person with that in mind. The person you're talking to is scared. Heck, we're all scared, right? We at least have that in common. And if someone attacks you, and I'm a medical reporter during a pandemic, so I know what that feels like, just just please try to let it wash over you. Don't engage. Let it go. It's not personal. Just move on. Delta and disinformation have made the fight to end this pandemic a gruesome battle of ego and wills between neighbors and friends. But Dr. Donovan told me something that really resonated with me, and maybe it will with you too. The truth needs an advocate. Let's all strive to be that. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by me with an assist from Lucy Huang. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Sound design by John Pino and music by the other Don Dixon. This episode was edited by TPR News Director Dan Katz and special thanks to Mark Mehmet for his continuing contributions to the show. Petri Dish is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bunny Petrie. Talk to you soon.